Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Ross Kemp. Over the last 18 years, I've made some 90-odd documentaries predominantly in hostile environments, from Afghanistan to Syria, from El Salvador to the Congo. And it's fair to say that during that time, I found myself in a few interesting situations. I'd been shot at, tear gassed, had knives pulled on me and spears thrown at me. But in all those years, what's impressed me the most is the resilience of the human spirit. Our ability, no matter where we're from, to overcome and make it through to the other side. So, in my new series, The Kempcast, I'll be talking to some incredible individuals who all have engaging stories to tell and have themselves overcome some extremely tough moments in their lives. Right now, we're living in unprecedented times and we should be doing all we can together to get through this as safely as possible. I hope that if you subscribe to the Campcast and hear how my guests overcame their toughest moments, it may help you overcome yours, whether you're going through one right now or you're faced with one in the future. Joining me today is former undercover drugs detective Sergeant Neil Woods. For 14 years, he infiltrated drug gangs, gaining the trust of some of the most violent, unpredictable criminals in Britain. And he now spends his time as a board member of Leap UK, a global group of law enforcement voices calling for drug law reforms. Now, we actually spoke for over two hours. The podcast won't be that long, but I do hope you enjoy listening to it. I found him absolutely fascinating. Neil, thank you for agreeing to talk to me. Absolutely fascinating book, Drug Wars. I... Well, so I've made a lot of documentaries and most of them in some way are often connected to narcotics, the sale of narcotics or the result of the sale of narcotics. Um, and I think the first thing that absolutely blew me away, shocked me, was the proliferation and over, mainly in my lifetime, in the last 50 odd years, just how bad things, how did it get to this? what you say in the book a lot how did it get to this yeah well i mean in the uk um it's we have it's we have a really interesting situation because the uk was actually really late coming to this world prohibition Mm. of drugs very late and because the international drug policy that we have is an american export it's it's not very british at all which i found out in the book we had a thing called the british system yeah exactly and the british system was actually the last worldwide resistance to american moral imperialism which is which is because there's this drug policy 
it's a very aggressive foreign policy from the United States. But they've always been like that. They've always believed in prohibition, haven't they? Well, only, only since 1914. They, they only banned drugs themselves in, in, in 1914 with the, with the Harrison. But before that, they banned alcohol. And there was always a big kind of a movement, particularly in connection with certain certain senators and a certain party and certain religious movements to ban most things. Yeah? Well, religious movement, you're spot on there. Now, alcohol prohibition is a fantastic example because of, of, of this American domestic problem because they, they banned alcohol, but but why? They banned it because the Protestant power base in America didn't like the influx of Catholics coming in from uh, Europe, from Italy, from Ireland, because mm -hmm. they thought they were going to lose their power base. So they associated alcohol more with Catholics because Catholics drank more alcohol. Mm. Uh, and so that's what Prohibition was about. The main sponsors, the biggest sponsors of Prohibition was the Ku Klux Klan because yeah, they that. hated the Pope. Yeah, yeah. So it's Still always do, been apparently. it's always been about prejudice, and mm. it's the same with all the other drugs. But also, the, the banning of alcohol increased what people were drinking. Before that, they were drinking beer, and they may drink spirits. Once you ban alcohol and you've got to move it around, you start making things like moonshine, which are 15, 10 times stronger. Yeah, exactly. And, that, just, and that's what yeah. happens with drugs as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's the economics of smuggling. So you wouldn't you, within two weeks of alcohol prohibition, you couldn't get beer anymore because it's not cost effective to smuggle it. It's too so big. it's the same, with, it's same with all the other drugs. You know, heroin uh, is now being contaminated with fentanyl because it's easier to smuggle because it's so small. Right. Uh, you... you it, Whatever the drug, there's something called the iron law of prohibition that the dr drug will always get more dangerous and stronger. Like so, as soon as cannabis you make gets stronger, skunk, you get, right? but then you get spice, the synthetic cannabinoids, which yeah. wouldn't have happened if you'd had a regulated cannabis market. What we're saying, Neil, is basically once something is banned, is made illegal, whatever that substance is, it generally becomes more toxic, stronger. Yeah, absolutely. It becomes a much more dangerous product. Um, and, and, the art, and the examples of that, things like cocaine becomes crack, um, normal weed becomes skunk, super skunk. And you skunk. get the synthetic cannabinoids as well. Right. You know, they yeah, only yeah. exist the because... Yeah, spice. You only get spice because alcohol... Because Sorry, because um, cannabis was banned. Yeah. If, if there'd been a, a regulated cannabis market 20 years ago, there'd be no such thing as spice. So, and spice is what? How many times stronger than the average... Joint, for well, it's far, it's far stronger. It's become a much dim, it's, it's a far different thing. Um, yeah. But the most important difference between spice and cannabis is you can't overdose on cannabis. It can't kill you. Yeah. Spice can kill, kill you. you. So you, you've got these much more dangerous products as a mm. result of mm. banning them. But of course, from a policing point of view, because that's the way, the, the way I, I come at this, mm. international organised crime was given birth by alcohol prohibition. Mm. It's now maintained by other drug prohibition. You wouldn't have international organised crime without these commodities. Because of the profits that are made from it. No, exactly. And even the National Crime Agency makes the point that the profits from the international from the, from drug business is reinvested into other forms of criminality. Hmm. So it might be the biggest value in, in, in organised crime, but it allows them, it's the bank. It sponsors. It's the bank and the sponsor for everything else, your people smuggling, hmm. um, sexual exploitation, Station. you name it, whatever organised crime's involved in, they can achieve that more easily because they control the international drug business. But if you go back to, to 1959, in the UK, under the what was called the British system, where I believe people who were addicted to heroin were treated as patients, yeah, yeah that's it. rather I mean, than as criminals. 
Yeah. And there's a big difference there. That was a British system. We treat you as if you are someone who has an illness, basically, and we will help you with that, with that illness. Is that correct? Yeah, that's it. And that's the principal difference Whereas between American the British system, way of doing things and the, and American, the American way of doing things. And the American things. system is to do what? And the American way is to look down on someone with a moral judgment that, you know, if you've got an addiction, it's a moral failing and we should criminalize you. And that's the way that Americans treated problematic drug users right from 1914. So, but Americans were trying to persuade our politicians for decades to follow their way of doing things. Before the Second World War, isn't it? Yeah, from before the Second World War and after the Second World War. And there were times when you had American policymakers coming over to this country and leafleting and trying to persuade our politicians to follow the American way of doing things. Mm. And when they were doing that, America measured their problematic heroin users in the hundreds of thousands. And we measured ours in the hundreds. Mm. So whose system worked? So in 1959, there's around 62 registered heroin users. 64, there's 342. Yeah. So, you know, it's tripled at least, yeah? Why yeah. did it triple? Why did it go up? Well, um, there are... There was a more accurate way of recording it and becoming mm-hmm. aware of them, mm-hmm. um, and it did actually increase all the, to to the to just over a thousand actually, mm-hmm. uh, and this was considered a problem. But at the time when we ended the British system, there was one thousand and forty nine heroin users in the UK, just mm-hmm. one thousand and forty nine, and the number was falling. Then we adopted the American way of doing things, so criminalising people. You couldn't really, unless you jumped through a number of serious hoops, you mm. could not go and get a prescription for heroin. You basically, you had to go to the black market to get it. That's when we, when the American system was exactly forced. as soon as as soon as that ended, as soon as we stopped prescribing it to people, we went to the American system. That whole market was given to organised crime, mm. just gifted to them, and that's what created the epidemic. So one thousand and forty nine. Heroin users in 1970. 20 years later, mm. 300,000. There's a very straightforward cause and effect there because as soon as the market's given to organised crime, they want more customers, don't they? Mm. They're in the Doctors mo- writing the prescription, there's no incentive for them to find new customers, is there? No, no, no. Gangster, fact, there is. It is actually an incentive to actually find less customers, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, because a doctor, yeah. he doesn't want more patients, he wants less patients. Whereas if you're a, a businessman working in the black market, more customers, the bigger the profit. Yeah, exactly. And that is what created the epidemic. Well, how did I know you can just, we can simply just say, oh, it's those bad gangsters' fault. But how did that happen? I mean, I know we're talking about one drug and we have so many other drugs to talk about uh, today. But why, why was there such an explosion in the use of heroin at that point? Well, if you're a problematic heroin user, now, we should understand there at first, if you don't mind, that Good. there is very clear. Uh, there's a wealth of very clear academic evidence which which tells us that most problematic heroin users are self-medicating for some kind of childhood trauma. Right. So that this is not a decision. That this is not. Um, I want to get high. Have a great time. I'm actually no, trying to block something. This out. is trying to block out memories. And you know, there's very good good evidence that a lot of this is is trying to deal with childhood physical and sexual abuse. So so you know if if if, if we find ourselves looking down on someone who's using heroin problematically, mm. you're looking down on someone who's who's basically trying to struggle with the memories of, of abuse as a child. Mm. So we have to put it in that context. But if you do find people who are using heroin problematically, they find themselves in a, with a choice. They can steal to pay for it and the new black expensive black market prices. Mm. They can allow themselves to be sexually exploited to pay for it, another mm. common response. Or they can find someone else 
to sell to. to. Sell to yeah. and find new customers. And of course, if you've got organized crime, they want those people, those they want be- to inc- become user dealers. Yeah. And they become the the, the the principal part of the expanding market. So these user dealers were actually partially responsible for this explosion and that and that again was just increasing the profits of, of, of the gangsters yeah, yeah exactly because o- always very quickly organized crime realized that those are the people to recruit and have on side and, mm. and they rec- got recruited into the business structure and, and is that still happening now is that oh, the way it works oh god yeah absolutely Al- although there is a slight shift with the heroin and crack market well i say slight shift it's a, it's a monumental shift there's less reliance on local user dealers mm. Because they tend to become police informants. And the use of, of those as police informants has meant that organised crime look for other avenues to we deliver not, their I know drugs. where you're going to go. You're talking about railway so, lines, aren't you? Chil- yeah, county lines. So ch- children are far, far more reliable for organised crime to, to use and manipulate than a user-dealer because police informants can't get access to them in the normal mm. way. Undercover cops like me can't infiltrate the gang, the kids as much. So children have become the perfect buffer zone between cops and dealers. Perfect. And this is a result of police success. You know, this is police success, which has led to children being recruited. It's, mm. a, it's a natural strategic response to the police. But isn't it a tactics. sad state of affairs that, that, that young people are being manipulated to that extent? I mean, I, I was given examples, and most uh, people who don't know what County Lines is, basically, effectively, it's larger crime organisations recruiting young kids, often out of pupil referral units or vulnerable kids or kids on an estate or in a gang, paying them money or giving them trainers. If it starts off going down the chicken hut sometimes as literally as simple as that or mountain bikes playstations and then you're asked to travel from a major conurbation to smaller conurbation where you will set up or there was already a set up a recognized house that that supplies drugs class yeah. a drugs generally to 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 people who need them right exactly yeah and, and actually it's not i mean we talk about county lines because that's very much in the news but it's, it's actually not just the kids who are traveling out out of the cities they're actually dealing in the inner cities as well uh, that's a little bit more hidden and, and not talked about as much. But, you know, the kids are dealing everywhere because they're just such a useful way of protecting the gangsters from the police. Uh, and, of course, the police are trying to respond to it by actually recruiting, trying to recruit child informants. Um, and um, How successful has that been? Well, um, there was a challenge by a charity which I provided uh, evidence for. They had a court case that the charity is called uh, Just for Kids Law. And they took the Home Office to task about this um, increased attempt to increase using child informants. They lost, but the publicity, I think, was very useful because we should not be recruiting child informants in this way. You know, but so you, they, you'd be against the fact that they were rec- recruiting kids, yeah? Oh, absolutely. I'm against absolutely. the whole use of kids anyway, aren't they? Shouldn't kids, exactly. Be, kids, exactly, but shouldn't kids be at school or out having a good time, you know, playing sport or doing whatever they do, you know, on the computer, whatever they do? Having uh, playing with each other, not being forced to go down railway lines, or not being forced to actually, probably potentially put themselves and their families' lives in danger. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but you know, the the way this should be seen, this phenomena of kids being used as drug dealers, mm. this should be seen as the end game. This should be the point where we say, you know, "This enough, enough." Pol- where of you know how, how far, we- how bad do things have to be in policy before we change policy? Because the only thing that's going to protect those kids is a regulated drug market for adults. It's the only thing. You, you are not going to stop the use of children by organised crime. You can't. Well, here, I mean, we're, we're getting very much 
ahead of ourselves here because we're so much we've got a history of the British drug scene to talk about and there it yeah. is varied and different and all types of manners of drugs that have been connected a to music to youth culture mm. to um, the way the press the press have made a, played a major part that's true in, yeah. in in either demonizing or in fact sometimes creating issues that weren't, weren't even there mm. and and renaming drugs and the pure purpose of, of selling papers or creating headlines right yeah absolutely yeah it's uh, it's the drug policy is the one the one area where journalists uh, feel they can make anything up they want i think why is that well it sells newspapers uh, no one sh no one's ever challenged them on it and they've never there's never been a requirement to provide any evidence for what for what they say well there's a very famous quote from let's not name him but i have met him um, he said, you know, drug stories are brilliant because um, they either make people want to go out and get them or they, they cause, you know, indignation and anger amongst uh, other readers. So, you know, it's a two it's a two way sale, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And and anger is what, what sells newspapers or create or nowadays creates online clicks. There's another thing I want to ask you. I mean, all the books that have been written, how easy is it now to become a drug dealer? I mean, there, I mean, you know, you can just go on the, the web or you just, you can talk to someone. I mean, I've never, in my time of, uh, of growing up and being in and out of London, I have never seen so many drugs. I mean, you know, you've got to know what you're looking for, of course, but I've never seen so many dealers on the streets, whether it be wraps, whether it be baggies, whether it be the gas canisters, the hippie crack, whatever it is, it seems to be a lot more than I've ever seen before. Yeah, and it will keep increasing because that's that's what you you do with prohibition. So it's about supply, is it, or is it about demand, well, or is it about both? Well, the police are really good at catching drug dealers. They're really? brilliant. They're brilliant. Well, they are. Why, they why are we, brilliant. Why do we only dealers. stop one percent of all the drugs coming into the country? Then? Well, that's because the supply the supply is too huge. They're, they're good at catching drug dealers once they're here. Once the drugs are here. Yeah, um, and they would catch twice as many if you gave them twice the resources. But that's part of the problem, because what the police can never do is shrink the size of the market. They can't shrink the demand, and they they cannot. We cannot affect the supply either. You know, there's never been so much cocaine being grown. It's pure. There's now never been so much opium poppies, heroin being being right. produced. There's never been there's never been as much as there is now. So, but what pol police do when they catch a dealer, they create an opportunity for two more. So by trying to police drugs, it adds to the violence. So I, by taking out one, he leaves the space, and that is taken up by two other people. Yeah, exactly. Who so then fight over that, that opportunity? Yeah, well, yeah. But I would think one of the things that I, when I was out working uh, with West Midlands Armed Police, they were talking about the desiccation of two major players in that uh, in, in that town who have been notorious. Those two very big organised crime groups, yeah. and saying that even their patches now have been split and there are feuds going on between states, literally, you know, guns being used. I mean, let's talk about, you know, the the equation between just the increase in violence. There you are, 1959, you know, there's no such thing as, as violence uh, attached to drugs. Drugs, people aren't aware. Yeah, no, there was no crime associated with drugs at all, violent or otherwise, up until the, until they were banned. So what the, what's the ratio now of people in prison who are associated to or there because of drugs? Uh, it's at least 50%, um, depending on what kind of figures you look at. But a lot of the 
Um, a lot of the violent crime, of course, is is to do with the drug trade as well. But there's a there's a very specific policing reason why the violence increases every mm. year. Very specific. Now, it's, and there's police informants. The use of police informants. Uh, now, informants, ninety five percent of them are for drugs offences. So it's a drug war uh, tactic. The use of a, use of an informant. Now, it's a, most, it's a dangerous game to play. Well, it, it is, but as it, as it is to be an undercover cop. Well, it is, but it, and it becomes more dangerous. But there's a there's a reason for this. So most informants are recruited when they get caught. Okay, mm. so say a guy's caught with enough heroin, he knows he's been to jail before. He's looking at five years, and he's sat in that police cell, and he thinks, well, I can't do five years. My kids are going to be too old. I, I, I can, but I know I can cut this sentence down to two and a half years if I do a deal. And he knows there's two detectives going to come in his cell door and offer him that deal. Mm. So he's thinking, I've got to give them something. Who am I least scared of? Mm. That's what he's thinking. And that relationship between informant and police officer is what drives the violence because he's not going to grass up the gangster who would snatch him off the street and oh. torture him to death. Yeah, yeah. He's going to grass up someone who's got less cover or who's less scary. Mm. So it's a Darwinian situation. And, you know, you've, you've been around the world. You've seen this Darwinian situation develop haven't you organized mm. crime does get more aggressive no, more got, yeah, i was time. in juarez at the height of the war between the sinaloa cartel and the juarez cartel and the four people were getting killed every hour and 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 like heads were being taken off i mean the the the, the levels of violence i think i personally the, the, the cruelty you know people being skinned flayed and it's about reputation, down. though, isn't it? It's about reputation. Oh, yeah, well, if you the, shoot me once, you've got the scariest... I'm going to shoot you five times. You shot exactly. him five times, we're going to cut your fingers off first and then shoot you 12 times. I mean, I have witnessed that in El Salvador and other parts of the world, the, uh, the sheer brutality. But is that because of profit? Is that because of, mate, I am more scary, I am more wicked than you, therefore you do not touch my product? Is that is that is that as it's, simple as that? It's the Darwinian situation that's created. Now, you know, I, I talk about South America as, as much as I can with, with audiences, but people can't, they, they, they seem, they think, think that Mexico is a long way away and it's nothing like what's happening here. And okay, we've got a long way to go, but we're at the thin aim, aim of the thin end of the same wedge. Yeah. We're all going in that direction because by banning drugs, we've created this Darwinian situation. You keep saying Darwinian situation. You mean it's the survival for, of, for the of the fittest. nastiest, the survival it's, of the nastiest. Because they the people who or are the willing, cruelest, the cruelest, yeah, the, the people strongest, who are willing to be the most intimidating are the ones who don't get grassed up. Mm. They're the ones who control a community through fear, and and over time that's happened in the UK, and we can see actually very clear in the UK, much clearer than you can in the United States, because we came so late to the to the full on American style prohibition. Yeah. Anyway, we're there now. Let's let's move on to to kind of like because the book talks about opens up sort of like very early on, but then quickly moves on to to the mods. Right, now, I was a bit of a plastic mod, I have to admit, in the eighties. Right. Bit of a new romantic one week, mod the next. Bit of a Dexy the week after. I moved around a bit, um, and 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 yeah, drugs were on the scene. It was sort of mainly marijuana, I guess, when I was a kid. Um, but. Um, the point being that the mod scene, the original mod scene of the 60s, yeah. um, you've got sort of like the baby boomers, I guess, were they called that? You know, they were young, yeah. uh, they dressed well, and they wanted to dance all night. 
And we were about to see, like 20 years later, another drugs craze that was exactly based around the same thing and maybe a bit more trippy. And in between that, you had your acid. But yes. let's go back Let's go back to the Purple Hearts, were they? The Black yeah. Bombers? All the different types of amphetamine tablets, yes. So they, these were legal at the time, were they? They not? were legal, yeah. yeah. So if you wanted to go dancing all night and... Um, party with your friends they people didn't they, you know people didn't talk about northern soul we up yeah. people wanted to basically there wasn't like every night no no but but if they wanted to go dancing at the weekend then it was very common to take uh, amphetamines and it mm. was a it was seen as a reasonable thing to do um it wasn't illegal was it no it wasn't illegal no no and there was how did they get the pills well they, they were legal you, know, you could buy them in a pharmacy but then they get banned right yeah, and I would argue uh, that there was no that there was no widespread problematic use of those pills. It, there wasn't the whole violent, scene, the there scene, wasn't the violence. Nope, there was no problem with that scene. There really wasn't. You know, with, with any drug, some people are going to have problems with that drug, and those people should be given help. Mm. But the trouble is that's that was the beginning of the um, the journalists' moral panic. There will be a it lot was of people. The first just, example of it. There, so this was journalists. This is when yeah. the headlines started coming coming in. But you know, the first thing I. Right, just went into my head then was like, you're a police officer. You're condoning the use of drugs. How dare you? Well, there'll yeah. be people listening in outrage that you're an undercover police officer, some 16 years, and there you are condoning the use of, of meth, um, methamphetamine. Is that right? Well, I, I've learned a lot <laughs> since, on, I start, on, but since, since I've started in the police. So, so, but, no, well, exactly. And, and, and you've come to certain conclusions, and that's that's why we're talking. So, so the press get hold of the fact that kids are staying up and dancing too much and yeah, taking, exactly. So taking speed effectively, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so a, a journalist uh, just picked up the story um, and ran this story called Pet, "Pet Pills in Soho," and it was essentially just. It was a grotesque expose, you know, it was using all sorts of uh, uh, excitable language and it was describing as some kind of sort of drug orgy of really terrible behaviour by young people and it, and it created a moral panic and that meant that there could be follow-up stories and people would buy the newspapers and... And but the trouble is, this moral panic was fake. Was 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 false, you know. It was invented by the newspaper story and... That newspaper story and the moral panic that followed led to the Dangerous Drugs Act of 64, which banned amphetamines. So that, those pills were so, banned as a direct result of a journalist so, making things up. So press, newspapers, moral outrage creates a change in policy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And of course, it was disastrous because the illicit market, the first illicit market that we really had, I mean... To, Supposedly, cannabis was banned, but there was, it was it was ignored by police. Mm. Um, but suddenly, there was crime uh, because people were buying, bringing, importing huge amounts of pills because people still wanted to dance, and they were not going to stop just because there was a law. And, and there were other drugs, obviously. Marijuana was around, you know. We're we're, we're in we're in the sixties here, aren't we? I guess, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you know, time of free love and all that stuff. Um, great hippies. So th there was marijuana, and, and what were the? Oh, no, we, we, I prefer we should we, use the word cannabis, cannabis if you don't mind, because yeah. marijuana is actually um, it has its Ty roots in racism. Because, really? Yeah, Tell because me. because when the Americans um, Americans 
really clamped down on cannabis in the 1930s. We're when, talking when about the plant or rather than the resin? Well, then. Americans used to call it cannabis as well. Well, it's the same. There's the cannabis plant, whether it's resin or, or, or flowering top, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but Mexican immigrants were, were perceived by the whites to be stealing white jobs. So Mexican They still are by many whites. Well, exactly. But so so they were persecuted by whites. And yeah. as part of that persecution, their behavior was criminalized more heavily, uh, which was they were seen to be peop people who use cannabis more than white people. Mm. So to make it sound more foreign, to make it easier to demonize them for it, they changed the name and used the Mexican name for it. Which is marijuana. Which is marijuana. So it was all based, the change, the name of the name change is based around is racism, racism and, yeah. and fear I and guess. fear yeah. yeah persecution yeah cannabis it is yeah, okay you. and it's to do with the cannabinoids in your body as well isn't that where the word comes from that's what it affects isn't it well actually the the endocannabinoid system was named after the after the plant because um the cannabinoid system has been identified so plant first and then that was named after for the effects that it has on the body yeah because actually medical understanding of the cannabinoid system was suppressed to to because of prohibition so doctors weren't even taught about it. But people have been using it before that. Thousands to heal of people. Years. Thousands. It's the world's oldest medicine. It's and uh, and very effective for many things as well. Now, why why is there so much fear uh, placed around it then? By you know, in the last two hundred years, hundred years, why? Well, it's it is it's, it because it's easy to grow. It's about and you, and you can't tax it very easy. It is about racism. It, it it's basically American domestic racism exported around the world. And there's a re there's a reason for that because you'll a lot of, you'll be upsetting a lot of Americans who are not listening to this. I've said this in I've said this <laughs> who in America. Scholars say, <laughs> but, but believe me, I've I've, I've oh, well, said how this did in that go down? How America. did that go down? Well, I mean, uh, there are many many enlightened and good people in America who are well, well, they're, they're legalizing well aware, it. They're well legalizing it. Yeah. And how many states? Lot six uh, well, other states. There's there's, uh, there's nine for adult use and many many more for for medical uh, use for medical use. Yeah, yeah. and th it'll go it'll go. And federal I have to eventually. say, I mean, let's stay away from the socialists. But clearly, if it helps somebody, and I you know, it clearly does help. There are some people that it does help, and if they're ill or they're terminally ill in particular, and it's going to make the days before they depart this planet easier or better for them and their loved ones, then please prescribe it. Oh, absolutely! I totally agree with you, and and it's a it's a scandal the way that it's not adequately happened in the well, UK. Also, I mean, let's not get too political, but they said they were going to do it, and they haven't done it. Is yeah, that right? It, it, yeah, exactly. And it, it and is genuinely a scandal. There are there are children dying for the lack of this medicine, and not not enough has been done about it. So so yeah, they're all going to think that you and I are two on one side. Let's carry on. Do you have many colleagues that agree with you, ex colleagues? Well, I'm part of an international organization called the Law Enforcement Action Partnership. So I'm on the board for the organization in the USA mm. uh, and Leap Europe and Leap UK. Mm. And we are rapidly growing and we are made up exclusively of law enforcement figures who have realized that this war on drugs that we've been fighting is a disaster. And so we are campaigning to change it. So we do speaking events we speak to people like yourselves um, and we meet politicians. And so, yeah, there are a lot of us we're, and we're growing rapidly around the world. But let's talk about you for a minute. So, you know, you, on the toss of a coin, you decided to become a police officer. Yes, that's right. Yeah. What was the other alternative? Uh, I was going to go backpacking around Europe because I'd gone to university. Do you sometimes think, do you know what? <laughs> was it heads or was it tails that came in for it you? It was heads that came up. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't be such a twitchy nervous mess um 
uh, now, I don't think. Uh, I wouldn't be hypervigilant sometimes when I'm walking down the street. Mm. Um, but you can't have regrets because I I now, I am pursuing um, a cause which should be pursued. Um, so I'm, I'm um, fighting uh, for change. And I wouldn't be able to do that without the experiences I've had. So it's got to take the rough with the smooth, haven't you? So how quickly, once you joined the force, did you go into undercover and, and, and into, dr- into drugs, in, into specifically looking at drugs? And, and what time was it? And where were we in terms of uh, Britain's rapid descent into drug mayhem? Well, I joined the police in 1989, so just around the acid yeah. house explosion. Yeah, uh, yeah, And I loved the music, but uh, I... Did you I take the drugs? I didn't know. I didn't really associate it that way. I just, I just enjoyed the music. But mm. uh, I got in. But I, I was crap as a cop. You know, I was terrible <laughs> as a uniform cop. I, um, I was quite young and naive, and I, you know, I, I always thought I could reason with anyone, and uh, couldn't understand why someone still wanted to punch me despite I was, the fact I was reasoning. Probably ten with pints, generally. Exactly. Again, yeah, it, but I, you know, I was naive, and I, I almost got the sack a few times because I was that bad. Um, but I survived. So- and then after four years, 1993, summer of 93, mm. I was recruited into undercover work. So I was still quite young. I was what, a young Why did they choose you? Well, I accidentally got an, uh, an attachment to the drug squad for a month. Um, and they hated having this useless... What were we going to do with Neil? Oh, give him the drug squad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did for a month. Um, and then one of the squad said to me one day, do you fancy having to go up buying some crack? Which I wasn't expecting the question. Uh, but he gave me this 20 quid, pointed me to this door. I uh, went and knocked on this door. This huge guy answered and says, what do you want? I said, oh, Whereabouts were we? Can we just in Derby. In, in Derby. in Derby. Yeah, in Normanton in Derby. And this guy looked at me and says, what do you want? And I said, I'll, I'll have a stone, please. And, um, which is just a 20 pound rock. Yeah. And um, gave him a 20 quid and he gave me the wrap. And, uh, you know, and he was very nice, actually. He said, um, he said, take care. You take care of yourself. Don't get yourself arrested which I thought was nice advice. Really. How old was he? Oh, he was probably about 37, something like that. And how old were you then? Young cop? 23. I looked about 19. Mm. But the point is, he was polite. Um, he had a reputation, but he wasn't that scary. Uh, but then he went to prison and talked to other people and suddenly they knew there was a new tactic around because that kind of low level, ground level up, Undercover work. So you put you put him not, in, you put him before. you put him inside. Yeah? I put him inside. Yeah. yeah. How do you feel about it? Do you feel guilty because he was nice? Was he that nice? He was selling crank. <laughs> he, like any dealer, is a product of prohibition. It is inevitable that there will be people dealing drugs. The fact that it's got more violence is down to policy rather than the individuals. Do you think so? I think there are some individuals out there that are quite wicked people that enjoy violence. Oh, yeah, yeah. But there are much more of those now because of drug prohibition. Oh, I'm not, I wouldn't disagree and, with and that. And most, I would say even most of them have, to, have been developed in that scene as a result of policy. Mm. Now, it's one of the biggest misunderstandings about crime that people have is that it's caused by criminals. It's not. It's caused by opportunity. You say that in the book a lot. And there's yeah. no there's no bigger opportunity that's ever been made than the, the legalizing the illegalizing drugs. Yeah. But there's a, there's a there's an important difference to to put in here as well. If if a cop arrests a burglar, burglaries will go down. Because there's a limited number of people who are willing to commit that crime. Mm. If you arrest the drug dealer, crime goes up because you create an opportunity you create an void yeah that can be but so it's just important to 
make people realise there is a difference in crime between drugs, drugs and, 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 and normal and crime, other types proper of crime, criminality. Proper crime. But going back to you, so that you go, you go and buy your your first twenty pound rock of of crack, and then and then they go, oh, Neil, well, can, yeah, that, Neil can buy drugs. That defined the next fourteen years of my life. Actually, uh, very how, quickly, it just how, changed very very rapidly. How 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 did it change? Well. It was, a new, it was a new tactic. And at that time in 1993, there was a lot of pressure from the government to the police to catch more drug dealers. Mm -hmm. A lot of pressure. Because also there was a lot of headlines at the time. There was, pressure yeah. on people who wanted to be re-elected, right? Well, yeah. But I mean, the, the newspapers had whipped up the, the public into a right frenzy. Because they've been scaring people about crack cocaine for years before we even had any. It is quite scary stuff, I have to say. Well, yeah, it, but, it, but it was like a weekly story. So yeah. as soon as it did hit the streets, there was the, the, the talk to, you know, you've got to clamp down. So mm. it became the Home Office directive to all police to make drugs the number one priority mm. above everything. And it was. So there was a lot of pressure. So I stepped into that and suddenly, wow, we can use people like him to, to catch huge numbers of people. So... I went from doing a few days operation to a few weeks and in no time at all, I was doing no less than six or seven months. Hang in on. Any, in any so you were city. going undercover for six or seven months. So you're moving into what, a flat, into a known drug area, associating with other drug users. Yeah. Taking drugs? No. I mean, I did, two, I, did, I had to sometimes, but not very often. And when you did take them, how did you get around? I mean, you know, what did you do? You just... Well, I never had to take heroin, um, right. thankfully. That would be very scary, I have yeah. to say. Yeah. Uh, I never had to do that because most trading with heroin is done in a, in a place where you wouldn't suddenly want to start using it anyway. Yeah, so, so you can start jacking it up. So you could go and buy it, buy your foil, your wrap, or whatever it may be, your baggie, and then you'd, you'd disappear as if you were going to use it. Yeah. But also, you'd have to give the impression to other people that were users that you were a user. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Now, how do you do that? It's not like a a widely practiced it's not like saying oh I can uh, I can kick the ball left and I can kick the ball right it's not a widely practiced skill is it well yeah um, but I suppose I mean I, I learned from from the people I got to know I, what I call it nowadays is weaponizing empathy so it was about using my natural skills to get to know people and and uh, and, and learn about them and yeah, it could be difficult in the first few weeks. You, you know, you arrive in a city centre and you're not part of the scene, and people are suspicious of you. But mm -hmm. you just have to um, just keep keep going. And uh, and you know, you have your legend. You have to have a, your legend completely right. Where you're from, your background. background yeah. And you have to. And, and, and did you sell? How closely did you sell to your true picture? I, in terms of accent, town that you were born in, all that. Did you? Um, I did you. You must have drawn on things that you'd really experienced. You can't just make up a whole new brief. No, I mean you have to. You have to draw on uh, as much. It's the close. The closer to the truth, the better. Of course, it's far. It's far far easier. Well, you're not um, going to make. You'll make less mistakes, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, but I did say that I moved around a lot. I, that, that's a very good way of getting around accents. And you d and you did move around a lot, didn't you? Yeah, it's exactly. And the so you were you moving. Know, when, you moved from Leeds to, to Brighton and everywhere in between around the east coast, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. So uh, having been in different places, it made it easier over time to talk about different places. Obviously. You said that you didn't inject heroin. Did you take other drugs though? You had to. I mean, you're, you're not going to be accepted. Well, well, actually, I've got to chew cocaine. Very, I've, I've been around cocaine. I've been around marijuana. I've it's very to, rare. I actually had on to, camera, to be honest. I've done I mean, it. cannabis was was no problem. That didn't. That, you know, I did that a few times. But I actually made a really stupid mistake in in the end of the nineties in, in one operation where I was infiltrating this um, this pub, and this pub was it was almost cartoon like the amount of gangsters 
that met there. It was just as ludicrous. Can you tell us what area of the world we were in? It was a village called Whittick. Oh, right. It's very specific. In Leicestershire. very specific. And it was was this, well, it's this village pub. It was ludicrous that people, you know, you got big hitters from Leicester, Nottingham and and Derby meeting in this pub in this little village. Was this where they did business? Yeah, they did. They did business. And they met there. There was this, there was a main target who was into antique burglaries and mass uh, uh, up um, thefts of cars. So I was arranging to buy stolen cars and uh, buying uh, coke off him and things like that. But I made a really stupid mistake in that I made myself out to be a connoisseur of amphetamine. And I'm not at all. But it was something to talk about. And it was a big mistake because one day this guy uh, came up to me and he said, The same hey, guy? Hey. Yeah, the, the main target for the whole operation. And he came and to me. I one take it he was a small chap now. He was a massive bloke, was he? Well, he was, he was a bit vicious because he, he, he would order his his um, henchman. In fact, that day when he came up to me, he just ordered his henchman to beat someone to a pulp for a £10 debt. He was dragged out of the pub and beaten. £10. £10, yeah. So he, he was he was, he was was a very unpleasant chap. And he came to me one day, says, hey, you, I've got you a present. And he brought out this bag of, um, it was paste. It was a very pure amphetamine. And it was this, this sort of pink toxic looking goo in this plastic bag. And you could smell Sorry. it as soon as he took it out of his pocket. You could smell it. It smelt like the urine from a glue sniffing cat. <laughs> that really sort of, and, and if you've ever smelt strong amphetamine, you know, you know what I'm talking the about. The urine from a glue sniffing cat. Yeah, that's the best way I can describe, describe the smell. Toxic stuff. Toxic stuff, yeah. So he says, there you go. And the trouble is, he he picked up a moment's reticence on my face, just a, just a glimpse, and that's all it takes, and that's enough to get his suspicions going. Yeah, and yeah, I particularly knew, in his business, and I could see his expression suddenly shift. Suspicion. But you could, as a connoisseur, you should have said, "That looks too pure to me. I don't want to touch it." Nah, no, it didn't no, play, no, no, it didn't, no, didn't play, play out like that. No, no, it played out. No, you're an undercover cop. He he was suspicious of me instantly, so I knew the only what? way I was going to put that fire out was to enthusiastically scoop some. I'm vitamin and have some. Yeah. So I put my little finger in, had a scoop, put it on my tongue, and he said, You'll want more than that with your tolerance. I thought, shit. So I put my finger in and had some more and swallowed it. And I could almost feel the mouth also forming from mm. burning my tongue. And that, that sort of weird warm feeling in my belly. Um and within like half an hour I was absolutely out of it and getting more out of it by the minute. Were you still in the pub? I was still in the pub, yeah. Well, I, I escaped after about 20 minutes. I made my excuses that, you know, I couldn't rush straight away. Um, Much- so I met up with my with the handler. I was with a companion as well. I was, with some, I was working with someone else. But I met up with the handler and just took one look at me and I says, look, just tell me, let me tell you my notes. And so he made, made, made some notes because I couldn't write, couldn't hold a pen. And then I had to be like driven away. I couldn't drive my car, obviously. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know enough about drugs that I know I wasn't in danger of overdosing, but I knew also I knew enough I was probably going to be in for a very difficult time. And yeah. I was an extremely difficult time. How difficult? I mean, I, it was it was horrendous anxiety. It was really deeply unpleasant. It was way too big a dose for someone. Do you think he'd done it on purpose? Um, who knows? I, who, who knows? I think, I think, to be honest, he was just pleased to be able to get such a, to show off that he could get such a strong commodity, to be honest. It was a strut. You know, look, yeah. look at the gear I can get. Um, but I couldn't sleep for th- th- three full nights. It, it lasted that long. It was horrendous. Mind you, my house has never been so tidy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I mean, the constant fear of being found out by very exposed by very brutal, cruel people. How, how does that happen? I mean, that obviously has played on you. You openly admit you've got PTSD. But mm. on a day-to-day basis, that's, that's a lot of pressure, isn't it? I mean, did you have a family? I, I did. I had um, two, two young children, um, which, you know, I, I would be working away for several nights and then I would make, a, make my excuses and get away. And often I would still take the kids swimming on a Sunday morning, which was a peculiar... To jump uh, ca- from one world into another world. Yeah, a very peculiar sort of calming, um, serene sort of place to be. But yeah, sometimes sometimes it, it was difficult to to, re- to relax from what had been going on in the week. And because actually from very early on, from an op- operation I did in Leicester in 2001, the incompetence of my colleagues put me at risk. And I don't like you saying that, will they? No, but it's true. Um, and, you know, unless we are honest, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, I worked with some brilliant and professional cops through my time, but there were times when, when either incompetence or corruption put me at risk. Mm. And there's no getting around that, and we should be honest about it. Mm. But there were some very stupid decisions made in Leicester, which meant that I went to meet uh, a gangster where there was a possibility they knew there was operatives out there. Um, and... I'd met this guy and he was a, he was a proper big hitter. And the reason we, I went to get him is because we'd had no um, photographic evidence of him. We'd no corroborating evidence. I'd been buying heroin from him, but he disappeared for a few months. Anyway, I brought him out by offering to sell him some counterfeit clothing. So he was excited because he loved his clothes. You know, he loved his Stone Island stuff. Mm. So we brought some mates with him I did, who I didn't know. And I met them in this secluded car park. And one of them suddenly... So the main guy says, well, you know, do you just want to sell me these clothes or do you want to buy anything? I says, well, if you carry him white, I'll have some, I'll have some white off you. So he sits in the car, cutting from this massive block of crack, this little slither off. And his mate suddenly looks at me, pushes me up against this wall and starts searching my clothes. And in no time at all, he finds the camera in the button. Because it wasn't James Bond tech. No, no, no. You know, no, it, no wasn't, it wasn't that good. No, no, no. And, and he found it. And there can't be any doubt. And he says he is as well, man. He's fucking 5-0. And I, yeah. remember, I remember looking at him thinking, you're too young to have watched Hawaii 5 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but you still also used... thinking I might be have my face carved off. Oh, I thought I was going to die. 
Yeah, because I knew the caliber of these people, and he and he and he'd found the camera, you know. And I was in isolated car park near nobody. Daylight, nighttime. Daylight, middle of the afternoon, but there was no one else in this car park. It was empty. There's That's two. That's why you chosen it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was a surreptitious place to meet. So I knew that if I ran, I'd get caught and I'd be beaten to a pulp. And I knew that I didn't have many options. So what I did was I just decided to. I had to stop him convincing the one I knew what he found. No. So I just launched into a tirade of abuse. And I said, you're fucking picking up my clothes. What the fuck are you talking about? It's not even my jacket. I just borrowed it this morning. So what do you mean? What? And, I, and he's just like, he didn't, wasn't expecting this. So so I've used them. Was it one of the button ones that go through that's got like a... Yeah, it's like a metal button and there's a little hole in the middle. Oh yeah, how big was it? Was, was, was there a backup battery on the Backup battery in the back, yeah. Really crap. I've used much better ones since, but yeah, these after that experience, can't yeah. carry on. I'll tell you kind of saw a story, but yeah. I'll tell you my, um, yeah, I didn't use them to the extent that you've used them. But go on, so they, so you just blazoned it out. I just blazed it, out and I just blazed gave it, him. But he found it. He'd seen it. I know, but I get, but he, he suddenly doubted himself because I'm saying, I'm saying, what's well, not my jacket? I don't know what you're on about, and you know, I've known him for months, and I had that advantage. I had, I'd known the guy in the car for yeah, about yeah, yeah, yeah. probably five months, something like that. I don't know, six months. Um, so then I slowly took the coat off him, off, off another one, and start slowly folding it up and putting it back in the bag all the time, giving this guy abuse. And yeah. I didn't let him get a word in edgeways. And he's going, but, but. So then I'm just started walking really, really slowly. And I just remember thinking, if you run, a, if you run from a pack of wolves, they'll chase, chase you. you. you if you re walk really, really Always slowly. Walk so, slowly so I'm going really slow and I'm still over my shoulder, just swearing at him, just insulting him. So did he ever, they didn't get the Stone Island clothing and you got away with your camera? Yeah. Well, I got halfway across the car park and then oh, I hear fuck. some steps behind me. Oh, I think, oh shit, so if I can just get go. one punch in, yeah, maybe I can, yeah. maybe. But it was the guy with the crack and he says, oh, don't mind my mate. He's a dickhead. Don't you want this ting? I'm thinking, you want to sell me crack cocaine now? <laughs> so I said, yeah, I'll have the ting. And I got the 20 quid out and did the exchange right in the centre of the camera. Yeah. And his mate is screaming at him. So he's got he's a camera. fucking heat, man. He's fucking heat. And he's going, nah, don't be stupid. Anyway, so then he walks back to the car and I'm walking. And in no time at all, he manages to convince himself of what, convince him of what he's found. So then he gets in the car and then I hear the car screeching and it's coming after me. And then it's driving at me. So I got out of the car park and onto the pavement. And it's near the near the ring road in uh, Leicester, in, in a ring road in Leicester. So I'm running on the pavement and the car's driving after me to catch me. And I just managed to get to a railing. So the Chances. car had to break. And I reckon I was probably two metres away from being run over. So what I mean? You just legged it? Well, then I started walking because then I was near to um, like a food takeaway and I was getting near to people then. And I thought I was safe. So it went round a roundabout and had another look at me and then went. Um, so then I got back to the to the secret location, uh, the debrief site, told the intel guy the description, the car number and everything. He went away and came back laughing. He says, well, I don't know why they didn't just shoot you. He says, there's intel, there's loads of intel, there's a gun in that car. Because um, that's the calibre of people You're dealing with. that they were. But it calibre was, being the right word. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it, but it was a series of mistakes and failure of my of the system around me, mm. which created that system. Very, very quickly, um, I'm going to buy. I'm trying to buy for the evening under underage children in an area of Mumbai. So my, me and the local journalist, I'm the white 
tourist i'm going out i specifically want to find underage girls right and there's a place called falklands road that goes for nearly a mile and it's full of, of brothels with very young kids in them young children anyway i get these two guys locals that come along the chaperoners i can never forget that he painted his head in and as it got hotter and hotter, it kind of melted down his face, kind of like he'd used boot polish to kind of put... Right. Imagine my head with a, with a black quiff, like a, like a Hitler quiff, yeah? But it's melting. Right. Here we go in. Obviously, I'm going younger. But before we've gone in, I've turned to the journalist. He's got a button camera. I've got a button camera. Press it. Hold. Is the light going? Lights going. Recording. Six hours, I went from brothel to brothel trying to find these young girls, and we got photographs of them, and I pretended to be more and drunk and getting younger and getting younger. Brilliant footage of them. I'm doing this or doing all this. Me and the local journalists get out of there because I am the only white guy there for like eight hours, right? I mm -hmm. stood out. It was like being in a different world. Get back, take the download out, stick it in thin. We've done it. I turned the camera off, hadn't I? Both our cameras off. Rather than turning them on, I turned oh. them off. Guess where we were the next night? Back there. Back with our guys going, oh, you must like it. Because I never actually did anything. I couldn't do anything. Mm. I, I blame the fact that obviously the beer that I had in my hand that I never really drank. It looked like I was drinking four rather than sipping one. But there you go. You want to make sure you carry If you're going to go undercover and carry an undercover camera, you want to make sure it works, don't you? Really? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And you want the best kit, don't you? Really? You do, really. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, team. Anyway, moving swiftly on. So there you are. You need to get your head kicked in or killed or shot possibly there mm. did it put you off no no it didn't um what was driving you well i mean i believed in what i was doing then i believed that um the end justified the means but whatever i was doing because at the end of the job i was catching gangsters mm. and you know i was a young cop that's what i wanted well, to you, do would you go up in court and face them i'd be behind a screen uh so i'd be sort of smuggled into the court through a different entrance and come in through the judge's entrance into it mm. and I'd be covered so no one could see me. Uh, and I would give evidence under a did, pseudonym as well. Did you ever think that you, your family might be in danger? Were they ever threatened? Did anything ever happen like that? No. Um, I mean, for a long time, I believed in the system. I thought the system protected me, actually. Um, and there was a lot of protection against corruption. So, for example, I would be loaned to a particular area for a six or seven month operation the team that i would be loaned to would be told before i got there not to ask me my real name where i was from and they were given a lawful order for that so, so they could they could never give up to any of the people that they may have been in the pay pay of exactly really yeah. so they used my pseudonym the same pseudonym i used to the gangsters mm. so my fake name was for the cops as well as the as well as the mm. other people so you know you had all of these these systems in place and you know the threat was sometimes real for a, for a Leicester Crown Court job where I was smuggled in the back. There was a credible threat to my life. There was there was going to be a hit. Um, so they had there was like counter surveillance leaving the court to make sure I wasn't followed and all mm. those kind of things. So it was a real it was a, it was a real threat. Um, How do you feel the fact that you know there's there's credible intel to say that that someone who is capable of and willing to kill you is possibly going to carry that through? Well, I was young and cocky, to be honest, you know, and that, you know, the incident where they tried to run me over, I, w I was buzzing from that. And mm. I was so pleased with myself that I, it, that I was finding myself to be the kind of person who could cope with nearly dying. Just if you mm, know what yes, I mean. Yes, I sort of, I was, I, you know, and, and 
I got this sort of reputation and people saying you're a nutter, I wouldn't do what you're doing and it boosts your ego. It does, doesn't it? And, and you think, yeah, I'm, I must be good. Mm. And I, I enjoyed it and I enjoyed the thrill of it. I enjoyed the lying. You know, I enjoyed the intellectual exercise of manipulating everyone around You enjoyed around the con? Me. Yeah, I did. I enjoyed the con and I enjoyed the buzz, the adrenaline rushes. I didn't know they were causing me harm at the time. No, I didn't, no, I didn't, under, I didn't understand it. What about um, harm to your family? How are your family at this point? Well, I, I, I believed that the system was keeping me safe so that my identity wasn't out. Um, and perhaps but what I, about your, the, the pressures on the relationship between you and your partner and your children? I didn't have the best relationship with my partner, to be honest. So sometimes... Do I not say no shit, Sherlock? <laughs> that might have something to do with the job, right? Well, yeah, quite possibly. But sometimes going away and buying crack from gangsters was an escape from home life. Um, but mm. but I still no, you people, know. Might, people might go oh you're being provided but that, 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 there is a so, I mean that, there have been times in my life where I have actually willingly got on an aircraft to go to somewhere dangerous to get away from from the pressures of home yeah I which can, sounds a bit it obtuse. sounds very familiar yeah very familiar go on sorry 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 Neil but but yeah no it's it's, it's fine it's um, but I mean I did I had a good relationship with my children and um, I didn't see them as often as I would want but I, st I still I, I did that bit right, I think. Are you still got a good relationship with them now? Oh yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah very, good. very good. Got close. So, so you know, you didn't realise the damage it was doing to you then. At what point did you start losing faith with with the police? The, well, it or was the system. It was incremental, but there was a very, very important event um, which shouldn't have shocked me, but but it but it. But it did. And it was an operation in Nottingham. Now, the reason I was in Nottingham, part of it was because at the time there was uh, daily gun violence. Mm. Was it, it was, it was, was it called? It was sh Shottingham. Shottingham. It was my favourite pun of the time. Shottingham. Yeah, Shottingham. And, and I, it was, and it was I in the news. I actually used to go out with a girl from there at the time, at the Black Orchid. Right. Yeah, yeah. Who was connected to some interesting chaps. Well, one of the main targets that was Colin Gunn, the, the gangster Colin mm. Gunn, um, quite an infamous character. And he was basically at war with everybody. Part of the pressure on me was to try and find intel about what was going on. So I um I manipulated one particular person who was in who was the on the periphery of that gang. He was on bail for dealing heroin and manipulated him for a few months. Eventually got a really good intro to a gangster I was after. This is about four and a half months into it. And then the day after, two of my backup had gone off sick. So when you say backup, explain to me what they do. Well, Theoretically, you'd have a team. If you wanted out, they'd come and get you. Yeah, but I'd, I'd never, I always made it clear right at the start, I don't want them anywhere near me because I, I can only think about what I, I can do. I don't want to think about what someone else is doing. So mm. so they were always miles away anyway. So it was, it was just back up on paper. It wasn't really, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't actually of any great benefit, but they had to be there on paper. Yeah. Um, but they'd gone off sick. So I got introduced to two new cops. First one shook his hand, no problem. The second one, I shook his hand and the hairs just went up on the back of my neck. You knew. He was just wrong, completely wrong. On a, on, and you know, when you've been working undercover every day. You get senses that. You do. You, 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 you're so. You're, you're on tuned. A, you're tuned, tuned high into level. it. Yeah. Your, your body language perception is much higher than normal. Mm -hmm. So so I said to the guy running the job, I said, look, I'm not happy with this guy knowing what I'm doing. Because this is before the briefing. And, says, and also this was a, sorry. And this was a different constabulary to the one that you'd, you'd work with. Yeah, it's not my constabulary. It's just I was on loan to them. Yeah, yeah, from, yeah. From so these are, uh, these are strangers, right? That's what I'm trying yeah, to say. Yeah, the strangers, yeah. And the one you go, you're all right. The one you go, you're a wrong one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he was. It was, just, it was like so loudly screaming in my brain, this guy is wrong. Um, what ranks were they? They were constables. Right. 
DCs. DCs, yeah. Detective constables. Yes. So so I went to the boss and said, I'm not happy with this guy. I said, fine. He was fine about it. He says, right, well, we'll exclude them both without telling them why. Mm. So they don't ask any questions. We'll just tell them to park in this place outside the city and exclude them from the briefing. Fine. Didn't think much more of it, but my operation ended hugely successful. Then Nottinghamshire Police did another huge successful operation. One led to the other. And eventually Colin Gunn's empire was brought down about a year afterwards. What did he get? Did he go away? Oh, yeah, a long time. Yeah, he's still in prison, I think. Um, at that time, it was discovered that the cop I'd taken exception to was an employee Mr. of Gunn. Colin Gunn. I do know you're going to say that. But he'd been paid to join the police. So when I met this him... This is like in, an episode of The Departed, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's exactly The Departed. Yeah, it's exactly that kind of thing. He'd actually been more successful infiltrating my gang than that than I had with his. Um, so he so he had been paid by gun to join the police, and seven years before, join, so been, was it Nottingham Nottinghamshire Constabulary? Yeah, yeah. So he'd been in the police for seven years by the time I met him, and he was paid two thousand pounds a month on top of his police wages plus bonuses for good information. Do you, would you say the biggest corrupter of of modern day British policing is drug money? It's almost the entire. Corrupt, corruption. What else would there be, I guess? No, there isn't anything else. I mean, there's two reasons for that. One, because there's more money in drugs than anything else, any other form of criminality. Mm. But by policing drugs, the higher up gangs, the, the, the people who supply the lower gangs, mm. they're monopolised. Over time, police get rid of the competition. So the monopolies grow. So the successful people like Colin Gunn get richer because they've got a bigger slice of the pie which means they're more able to corrupt the system. Because they've got more money. Because they've got more money. So the mechanism of policing it takes away the competition, makes the people richer, corrupts the system. So, so in a way, the more, successful, the more successful you are, the richer you make the top gangsters. Exactly. And they more successfully corrupt the system. And that, pan, that pans out right across the world. Mexico, where you've mm, been, yeah, 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 it's yeah, yeah, a yeah. narco-state. Guinea-Bissau well, and West well, Africa. Also, it's not just the fact that they... They control police. They control government as well. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, some some governments are entirely. States. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly, and that is inevitable, and will continue to get worse the longer we try and treat this as a policing issue. When I met with senior cops afterwards to debrief that event, they said to me, "Well, Woodsy, <clears throat> of course this happens. We know that this happens with this much money involved. Would it? How would it not?" And it was made clear to me, well, yeah, we know this is why we have the safeguards in place because we know there are spies in the police because that's how rich organised crime is. You know, and any any up and coming gangster, why would you not recruit people to join the police? It's mm. obvious, you know, and there are untouchable gangsters right around the country, the very notable ones, Manchester and places like that, because of the level of corruption that's how so successful they are. Have they become untouchable? Yeah, absolutely. There are people who get acquitted of multiple murders. Um, yeah, there are many untouchable gangsters, and the longer we go on, the more untouchable. And, and all those untouchables are associated with with narcotics. Yeah, it's only the drug trade. Only the drug trade is the only form of criminality that that can corrupt the system like this. Mm. The only form, and it's very important to note that I think. I'm going to ask you a question now. I have to ask everybody that that comes on. Uh, you've you know, from the toss of that coin, your life went on a very different path. You put yourself in harm's way on numerous occasions. You're still in a way doing that because you're standing up for something that you believe in, even though you worked for many, many years to sort of just 
destroy that in one way, you, you're now you've turned you've turned completely the opposite way. You've 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 one eighted your, your belief. Yeah. yeah. What has been your toughest moment? My toughest moment. I'll have to I'll have to give you a little bit of context with this. Yeah, um, now I've I've talked about weaponizing empathy and uh, a guy a guy in nottingham i i manipulated up I, I basically as an undercover cop you pick on vulnerable people because vulnerable people are easier to manipulate of course, yeah. and i'm in the game of manipulating people and also vulnerable people they tend to have the most contacts they're using the most drugs so like a guy in um nottingham i picked on him because he was on bail for dealing heroin he was connected to all the people I knew I wanted to be connected to. And I spent weeks getting to know this guy. I wooed him. I remember one day I gave him a present, actually, a baseball cap, because I'd seen he was, his baseball cap was really tatty. And I was making myself out to be a travelling shoplifter. I actually went shoplifting with him sometimes, um, which is great fun, by the way. <laughs> um, but anyway, I gave him this present. I'll bear that in mind if this goes horribly wrong, which it looks like it might do, guy. I'm joking. I gave him this Toughest baseball moment. cap as a, as a, as a present, and he, and he was so so happy and he put this he put this baseball cap on and looked in this reflection in the shop doorway and he was really happy you know anyway when he was arrested months later he ended up being on minute to minute watch suicide watch suicide watch and the reason for that is he believed i was his one friend in the world and that he was the one per i was the one person he could talk to the only person he'd ever been able to talk to mm. and that knocked me for six it really did, but that's not my toughest moment because I still carried on. And because the way I saw it at the time was that I knew I was causing him harm. I knew, I knew I was putting him at greater risk, but in my mind at that time, I was making the ethical judgment that the end justified the, the means. means because at the end of the job, I catch the gangsters. So I accepted that harm as, justi as justified to that vulnerable person. And I carried on doing that for some time afterwards. But eventually I did a job in, in Brighton and I saw, it was like a vision of the future because the police had overused the tactic and the, the level of casual violence that was being directed towards vulnerable, problematic heroin users was off the scale. And it was my view that they were casually murdering people as part of the reputation because they were using homeless people as proxy dealers in the way that they use children nowadays, right. but they was using homeless people and they were saying to these homeless people, you know, you grass us up, we're going to kill you. We know how to do it. And they had the highest drug deaths in the country at the time. Now I can't say that they were murders, but what I can say is that a lot of people on the streets of Brighton believed that they, a lot of them were murders. So they were OD'd on purpose. They were OD'd on purpose. Yeah. That was the belief. And I saw just how horrific that was. And it suddenly in all of the doubts that I'd had over, over the years, all of the, the experiences, the corruption, all of the little nagging doubts all suddenly hit me. And I, I had a sort of eureka moment that this has gone like this because of me, because of the tactics that people like me use. This is a response to the police. And I realized looking back over 14 so, years. So, so basically you believe because of the way that you've manipulated vulnerable people, the dealers were now putting it on those user dealers, the homeless ones, and killing them if they thought that they were grassing or they were... Or introducing people, people they weren't meant to. Yeah, i.e. Yeah, coppers. Yeah, exactly. Undercover coppers. Exactly. And I realised that this was a strategic response to the tactics that I'd been 
enthusiastically developing and teaching other people. By this time, I was involved in teaching other undercover cops. So you cops. felt that you were responsible for this increasing amount of deaths? Yes, yeah, definitely. And and quite clearly I was, you know, because cast all the way back in Derby, the first time I bought crack, the guy said, you know, take care. Don't get yourself arrested. He had no idea that this tactic was out there. So that every single year that I did that work, it got more violent. The streets got more violent. You know, I've been stripped at gunpoint. I've had samurai swords to my throat. I've been threatened with knives more times than I can. thought I was going to die all of these times and I thought it was worth it because of the end justified the means. But eventually in Brighton, I had to face up to the fact that everything that I'd done in my undercover career only caused harm to individuals and society. So as soon as I understood that, I realised that the end never justified the means. It never did. So the harm that I caused to that guy, that suicidal guy in Nottingham, all of those vulnerable people I caused harm to over the time, that was never justified at all. And actually, what kind of person am I that sees that as a justified harm anyway? You know, what? it's like a military way of looking at things. There's no room for that kind of way of seeing things in civil policing. And I had to face up to all of those decisions I'd make over those years it was a wrong decision. I was so just was, causing harm. And, that, and was that, was my, that was my worst moment because I had to face up to all of those times I justified to myself, you know, and I wrestled with it and justified it to myself and I realised I was wrong. I had just been causing a lot of harm to some genuinely vulnerable people and putting them at risk. Did somebody else help you come to that conclusion or did you do it on your own? Was it just seeing the amount of dead bodies that were turning up in sleeping bags or what was it? No, it was a realization. It was it was a it was just reviewing, going back and revisiting the doubts that I'd been having at different times, and I think I'd been resisting coming to that conclusion. You know, it's it's really hard when you're in a a system of people who believe in it. You know, you're a central, you're a part of it. Mm. Um, you, you've spent years developing your expertise. Uh, which sort of relies on believing in what you're doing. It's really hard to come to that, to face up to that conclusion. Well, it was, it was for me anyway. But at that point, is that when you decided to leave? I realized then I had to do something to leave. Yeah. I mean, I tried to change the system from within for a while. Um, but I realized it was just making me ill. And eventually I had a, a breakdown. My PTSD got louder and louder until I was an absolute mess. Um, and so my mental health dictated that I had to leave. But yeah, really, I did decide that. Also, surely, Neil, there is a level to which you can actually pretend to be someone else, live and breathe it. I mean, it's all right, you know, being an actor where you, you go in for 12 hours and you take the costume off and you get in your car and you go home. Even that can sometimes be a pain. But you're not risking your life. Mm. You're not risking your family's safety and you're not risking your mental health. No, I mean... And also, as you say, eventually causing or possibly causing the deaths of others. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The, the violence, the increased violence in our streets is because of police success. And I was a key part of it. I was. And, and you know, being a part of LEAP, campaigning as you do, do you think that that helps you with your PTSD? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, the sense of doing the right thing reduces the guilt you know i've 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 got is that why you're doing it in my low moments i 
um, I am very unkind with myself and criticize myself. Mm. Um, I, 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 you know, PTSD is a, a vicious thing. You can attack yourself and, mm. uh, and my part of my brain's telling me I'm only doing this to get rid of the guilt. But no, in my better moments, I can say, absolutely, I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. Mm. Let's go on talking about, um, about the history of, of British, um, the drug wars. Uh, and, and 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 the violence and the increase in violence that never went away. But there is there's also sort of um, at a very interesting point that you talk about earlier policing. You know when the using the use of of cannabis in places like Brixton and in Notting Hill and how that was stamped on and how that in many many ways brought about the riots. I would say the riots were completely about drug policy. Completely. I mean the riot. Uh, Brixton riot in 1981, it's no accident that it's 10 years after the Misuse of Drugs Act because there have been 10 years of the police picking on black people in, in Brixton. Because, you know, when police were given this war chest of powers, and it is a war chest of powers, the Misuse, the misuse of, drugs of Drugs Act. Act. It yeah. really is. And the police, you know, they were given this directive, right, you've got to tackle drugs. So cops, cops had never really thought drugs were nothing they weren't sexy policing they were just a pain no, in the arse no they wanted to do armed robbers didn't they yeah, yeah they were just a pain in the arse so could, suddenly cops had this task to do and these powers to do it and they thought well, what, do a drug, what does a drug, drug person look like and of course they decided that the drug person looks like was a, was a black person and in Brixton it was the black young black men who were stop searched all the time and um, you know in drug wars we interviewed um People from both sides. Coppers and, and... Cops and people who were on the other side. Being young black males at that time. Yeah. And notably, we interviewed uh, the, the brilliant Peter Blexley, um, who you know was involved in, in the riots. And he says, I wasn't a racist till I became a cop. I became a racist thug as a police officer. And that's because of drug policy. Yeah. Because we were told to go and find people for, for drugs until we picked on black people. Yeah. Um, so, so we interviewed both sides, and it, it was, it was, it's very clear, isn't it? It was that's what it was about. It was, it was, and I mean, drug policy, the drug war has always been about racism. It's in the DNA. That was the export from the USA. What, Chinese bring opium. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a way of oppressing other people, other other people's behaviour, um, and it still is. It, that, that's what it is about. I mean. You know, if you look at the statistics, if in London you're ten times more likely to be stop searched for drugs if you're black if you're black than if you're white. Yeah. And it's the same around the country. But people will say, well, that's for any crime, but it's much more so for drugs. So, for example, if you're if you're a black male in uh London, you're more likely to be stop searched. Then if you're found with drugs, you're more likely to be charged rather than cautioned, cautioned if you're white. Mm. And then if you go to court, you're more likely to be, more likely to be put sent to prison, yeah. a white person not. Now, now you could argue that the, the whole criminal justice system is racist, and you'd be right. However, the stats are fascinating. For a non-drug crime, a black person is twice as likely to be sent to prison than a white person. For a drug crime, they're four times more likely. So drug policy, it's about race. It's always been about race. Were you aware of this when you were a police officer? God, no, no. I've I've had to learn a great deal since um, 
since since I was in the place. Do you think a lot of those things, the statistics, the statistics like that, which are you know absolutely shocking? I can't back up what you're saying, but if it's true, then it clearly is racist. There's no arguing that. Um, is that is that set by the state? Is that set by certain individuals in government, or is that society, or is or is that policing? Well, how does that well, how does that happen? I mean, is that just judge judges' policy? There's very little overt conscious racism at play here. This is about unconscious bias, mm. and and is this placed by the media? Then is this historical? Is this based on fear? What is it based on? It's it's a a fact of our society. Yeah, we, we we were a slave trading nation, and we've still got the echoes of that in our mm. in our consciousness, in our in our unconscious bias, and the choices that we make, and the views that we have of people. People, if I say when I say this, and there's police in an audience, if I explain this, you know, you you I offend the police officers in the audience. And when I was a cop, I would have been offended by someone saying this. I would say, I am not racist. I am impartial. I am fair. But you have to face up to the fact that these biases are these biases are here. I would say that you know I'm just about to make a documentary about fentanyl and the way that it's being used uh, to cut heroin and the dangers that that's causing. Mm. And I will be going out into areas undoubtedly where there are drug dealers and meeting them. Um, and I would say that I've also done films about knife crime and gun crime. And when I've spoken to predominantly young black or mixed raced young men there is a complete mistrust of the police a mm. complete mistrust of the system we have managed to or the system has managed to alienate a youth a, young, a group of young people if not them their forefathers and possibly their own for their forefathers because of the behavior of the police yeah exactly exactly and, and it's, it's self-perpetuating you're, you know, well. you're four times more likely to go away if you're black than if you're white for a drug crime then yeah it's it's madness and we, you know these stats are there and available we should be acting but how do you how, so this is a bigger question but how do you go about reversing that how do you go about changing the them and us situation that now exists between certain communities in our in our country in our society and the police well just before i answer that i should add that there is good evidence that there is no a large amount of drug use from any ethnic group mm. so there's good evidence that blacks use drugs just as much as whites but how do we tackle it well the same way we tackle all of the drug problems that we have is by regulating the drug markets you this unconscious bias and the othering of people, you know, sort of trying to control other people's behaviours, which is, is the essence of drug policy. We can only we can only change this by regulating the drug markets for adult use. We have to take the whole market away from organised crime. It's the answer to the violence. It's the answer to the problems of uh, uh, young black men not trusting the police. Mm. If you fix blood drug policy, you fix that problem. You fix the societal problems. Is that not like a bit of a utopian? I mean, utopian idea is that the right word? I mean, it's just like so you're, you're kind of like this is Harry Potter time. I mean, you're going to suddenly legalise drugs overnight and everything's going to be all right. Well, the first thing I would do, the most urgent, is to go back to the British system in relation to heroin. That's the most urgent. That's the people where people Still are suffering even now. Yeah, that's the way. That's the drug where people are suffering and need the most help, and it's the it would have the biggest impact on crime. The other thing I would do is on the other end of the spectrum is cannabis. I mean. In London, there was a poll by the Evening Standard that 63% of Londoners support the legal regulation of cannabis. Mm. So it's not as if it's a hot potato. The public want this. Now, 
County lines. Most kids are actually recruited not by giving them trainers. They're recruited through the teenage cannabis market. Right. There shouldn't be a teenage cannabis market. It's much easier for kids to get hold of cannabis, MDMA and cocaine than it is alcohol because regulation works. So if you regulate these markets for adult use, you protect our children. Start with cannabis because there's wide public support for doing it. Mm. And you break the link between children and criminality. Um, you you um, end the, the violence associated with the trade. You know, even today in the BBC News, there's two murders happened as a result of a robbery at a cannabis mm. grow. You mm. know, that doesn't happen in a legally regulated alcohol market. No. You know, you don't have the head of one brewery shooting another one no. for fight over who's going to buy whose beer, you know? Mm -hmm. or, for uh, stealing, or for stealing his or beer. Or for stealing his beer, yeah, if he's burgling your brewery. So, yeah. so you, you know, you make a point in this book that this is now, people see the legalisation of cannabis coming over the hill, yes? Yeah. One of the biggest companies that's growing cannabis, that's that's, made, that's that's set to make a load of money out of it, is a British company. Yeah, GW Pharmaceuticals, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's not just, and they're not just doing this for medical, medicinal reasons. They're seeing it as this will then trans, transfer or transport into recreational use, right? Well, for the moment, I think the pharmaceutical industry, actually, a lot of them would be very keen to keep it a medical market and keep the adult market illegal. Because if you suddenly make the adult market available, um, the medical, medical companies market. lose money. So there's a lots of vested interest in keeping the adult market illegal. Illegal, so, is there really? Yeah, follow the, from, from follow the, the money. From the medical, yeah. from the medical team. Yeah, follow the money, yeah. Well, the, the more money would be... In, well, there's a lot of money in the medical side. Well, there's a lot of medical and pharmaceuticals. Not if, not if you can buy cannabis down the, you know, a gram at your local off-license. Off mm. So, you know, there's different, so there, so different financial so, interests at play here. It's all about the money, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So tell me again, so so how, how do we go back to the British system? We started at the British system, we're going to f finish. This is the way that, 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 that these islands operate, which was treating people who had drug addiction, serious drug addiction, as, as patients. Well, we are actually beginning to creep back towards the British system in the UK. And the fascinating thing is it's being led by the police. Now, obviously, my organisation, Leap UK, is very active. We spend a lot of time speaking with police and advising police and crime commissioners along with our allies and now the police and crime commissioners some of them are actually spending policing money mm -hmm. on health responses to problematic drug use so uh, one that started already in the northeast uh, middlesbrough yep the police and crime commissioner there is using police money to pay for heroin prescribing now in my view the system of heroin prescribing they use the hat model is not liberal enough they need I'm to be, funnily enough going they, up there to shoot a documentary about said subject. Right. Well, it, it's great and it is fantastic. And I, I love what the Police and Crime Commission mm. is doing there. And it makes policing sense because if you look after those 10% of people, your crime will drop. Because they're the ones committing most because of the crime. Because they're committing the crime. So it, it's such sense for policing. And it's happening. It's about to happen in Birmingham as well. The whole of the uh, West Midlands. Uh, they're, they're going to have also pres heroin prescribing. It's just about to happen in Scotland. And it's spreading. Now, would it be... Yeah, will it be for that 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 ten percent, or will it be for the other ninety? It's 90? just it's for the hardcore, most suffering ten percent. The use ones the most. that commit most of the yeah. crime, which makes sense. However, in my how view, do you, how do you um, how do you specify which ones are the ten percent? Well, the HAT model, the 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 decision making for the heroin assisted treatment model is mm. that you must have failed two other forms of treatment, right. which you know it's a clinical approach. 
personally, it's not liberal enough because look at it from, look at it from this point of view. If you're a drug treatment service provider and you have a new presentation for problematic heroin use, mm. and it's a 21-year-old woman who is clearly being sexually exploited, why would you not rescue her instantly yeah, 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 by, prescribe, yeah, yeah. by prescribing her the most effective treatment? Because she's the is, most danger, right? Exactly. You, you can be rescuing people. So HAT, the model that they're using in the Northeast, is, is not liberal enough. Because it's on, based on failure. Yeah, Yeah, but it's, a good, but it's a good start because it's a step back towards the British, system. the British way of doing things, yeah. Which makes me happy. I mean, in Switzerland, they've been providing heroin-assisted treatment since 1994. And, and, they, they, and they used British evidence for that policy. And as a result of that, they reduced burglaries by 50%. They reduced crime massively. The cuffing that you talked about, mm. uh, the, you know, the exploitation. The exploitation, women, the using of drugs to that. use people to go into prostitution. They've ended it. They've ended it. They have prostitution, but they don't have... People that type who, of street prostitution. They don't have it. Who are basically used and abused because of their addiction. Yeah. yeah, because if you've got a problem with heroin, you get prescribed heroin. Now, there will be people listening to this who uh, already agreed uh, with my view, and there'll be some who have been won over and now agree that we need to regulate the drug markets to take the power away from organised crime. Now, if any of those people listening do agree, then... They are now part, you are now part of the social movement for change because you're unlikely to go back to your previous view. So there's, wherever we talk about this and, and win people over with the evidence, it's bringing change. So what I would ask those people is to support the movement. So I, I'm part of Leap UK. Mm. Um, please follow us on Twitter at UK Leap. And do, you, do you think there is enough support out there for your views though? It's growing all the time. I speak to audiences all the time and what about and, and people got, change their minds. I've got friends that people do change their minds, so they frequently do, and they're entitled to as well. What about, you know, I've got friends who've been through NAAA. Do you think they get enough support in this country? To, do you know, for them, do you think they're recognised enough? No, I mean, and the, the recovery movement is an important part of, of you know, our, our wider reform movement. Do, 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 they, do they support? What you're doing? Yeah, there are yeah people in recovery who who realise that their their problems uh, were made much worse, and some of them caused by the, the current current drug policy and being criminalised. Yeah, mm. it was caused by that stigma, that alienation, um, the manipulation of organised crime. They realise what got them into that situation, and um, there is a, a growing recovery movement for change. Yeah. Do you realistically think that there's going to be a movement on the legalisation of of heroin and and um, cannabis? I do. I think cannabis is inevitable. I think it'll happen everywhere. The, the dominoes are already fall, falling. We will, the argument's been won. I don't think we'll go back. Mm. Uh, we'll soon have the evidence from Luxembourg. There was some evidence from Canada released yesterday mm. which showed significant reductions in, in child usage of cannabis. Now, that in itself is a victory enough to persuade politicians, I think, that we need to do it here. We should be restricting our children's access to this drug. We shouldn't be allowing this situation to continue. And by legalising it, you're saying it's on the top shelf and you can't reach it, whereas if it's criminalised, it can be given to you at any point. Exactly. And the evidence is very clear from the United States. In every single state where it's been legalised for adult use, child, every, use, is, child use has dropped. And that's in, that's important. We should be protecting our children. So, so yeah, it is inevitable because the argument's won. Uh, it's just a matter of time politically. Heroin 
again, prescribing of heroin will come back. The evidence will gather. Um, MDMA, I want to see a legally regulated MDMA market. There shouldn't be any deaths from MDMA and there's no excuse for it. You know, we should have safer festivals, um, safer drug taking. The psychedelics, the medical use of psychedelics will come. So, yeah, all of these things are happening. We will win eventually. But I have I, to be optimistic. Oh, you have to be optimistic. But let me just point, point something out. You know as well as I do, because of the way that human beings work and the curiosity of human beings and the way that human beings feel about themselves, if you legalize marijuana tomorrow and I said, I've got something illegal here called super-duper-duper-duper skunk, it's illegal. There is part of every human being that wants to go around the back of the bike shed and smoke that rather than smoke that boring legal stuff. How do you overcome that? Well, you do it by choice and you do it by clever regulation. So, for example, um, that there is very good evidence, actually, that people will use a safer commodity if that regulated commodity is available. Mm. You know, we used to have um, rum that was much much stronger than the 40% that's mm. allowed and it used to kill people. So we regulated and capped it at 40%. Mm. There is no illicit market for rum that's stronger than 40%. But there is, a, there is something in humans that is that we want to do something that's naughty and different. Yeah, but you can shrink the illicit market by regu by good regulation. You can shrink it so small that people are not so are not so in contact with it. At the moment, the entire commodity is illegal. Legal. So the entire market is is illicit, and you're in instantly connected with criminals. I'm not hoping to see your demise any day soon, but do you think it will happen in in your and my lifetime? Oh, I'm not sure. I know I know I'm in for the long game, um, and I know I'll be passing the baton to lots of other good people um, who are fighting for the same cause. Neil, thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Kempcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate and review. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Kemp and on Instagram at Ross Kemp TV. This has been a Freshwater and the Chancer Collective production. Thanks to the team and one fine play. And until the next episode, goodbye. 